Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Hope your October's been off to a suitably chilling start. As promised last week, I've got a few exciting things to share with you. To start off with, I'd like to give you the chance to win a copy of the new werewolf movie, The Amityville Moon. Let me read you the description. When the moon rises, the beast is unleashed. Kick off Halloween season with the terrifyingly suspenseful werewolf epic, The Amityville Moon, directed by Thomas J. Churchill and starring Cody Renee Cameron and Tuesday Night. I've posted a link to the trailer in the show notes for you to check out. It looks like the perfect thing to jump scare, I mean jump start, your Halloween viewing. You can own The Amityville Moon now on Blu-ray, DVD, and digital, or, better yet, win a copy of your very own. 
keep your eyes on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram over the next couple of days for your chance to win. So now that we've helped cover off something to watch to get you in the Halloween mood, what about a little something to kick back and read? Well, you're in luck there too, children of the night. The special Halloween edition of Dark Matter magazine is available now, and it packs some serious chills. It also just happens to include an interview with yours truly about our podcast. And there are a whole treat bag full of deliciously dark tales for your reading pleasure, which includes a story from Haley Piper, who you heard from last week, not to mention some incredible artwork as well. Thanks to the spirit of generosity that's possessed the amazing folks at Dark Matter magazine, you can read the entire issue on their website for free. DarkMatterMagazine.com Link is also in the show notes. But I'm also working on getting Tales to Terrify patrons their own full digital copy of the publication, which should, with any luck, be headed your way before too long. But that's not all. There's a special variant issue included with this month's Nightworms Book Club box. If you've never heard of Nightworms, I highly recommend you check them out. If you love having the most unique horror books and loot delivered right to your door, there's no better way to do it. And, well, the current box, as well as the November box, are already sold out. You can still make sure you don't miss another one. Head over to nightworms.com for more details. I also promised an update soon on our Patreon. I'm just in the process of putting the finishing touches on our new tiers and rewards, and I think you're going to be delightfully disturbed. I mean that in the best possible way. I hope to share the final details with you very soon, and I really appreciate your patience. In the meantime, can I just say that you continue to surprise and amaze me with your support children of the night. Our deepest, darkest thanks goes out this week to Mikey Pantoya, Luke Milovic, Shanda Hunt, and Graham Reynolds. I don't want to jinx it, but thanks to the incredible support of patrons like you, it looks like we're on course to finally reach a goal that's been years in the making. Being able to pay all of our contributors. That includes our fantastic narrators. And I think we can do it by the end of the month. So if you've ever considered supporting, throwing in even just $1 a month would make a tremendous difference. You have no idea how happy this makes me and how thankful I am to everyone who's helped us on this terrifying journey. Speaking of terrifying journeys, I think it's time we dive into our fiction. Our first story for the evening comes from Alex Norton. Alex Norton is the author of Witchbone, a series of horror fantasy adventure novels for anyone who enjoys that kind of thing. 
Alex also writes poetry and short stories that occasionally escape and run around loose on the internet. Alex is a former Baltimore, Maryland native, currently located in a semi-haunted farmhouse in New Hampshire. You can find Alex on Twitter at the Xanomorph. Children of the Night, join me for Alex Norton's The Balefire, a Tales to Terrify original. The moon floated overhead, a bright and watchful face. Barks snapped. Sparks flew in sprays of firefly bursts, gliding up to the trees. Flames roared, shedding heat like a billowing skin, scorching the ground all around it. The smell of the thing's pelt was acrid and pungent as it burned away its lips pulling back from the overlarge teeth as it cooked. A rictus of regret. A rueful smile. Embarrassed. Being caught by a little girl. Killed by a little girl. Burned by a little girl. The little girl in question, hands bare and dressed in a red down coat, stood in front of the makeshift bonfire that she'd built. Like her uncle had shown her, a dependable fire. A hunter's fire. A bonfire to ward off autumn chill. Hot as an oven. Built to devour the devourer. To burn hair. Knobby skin. Large ears. And big teeth. Until nothing was left. She was torn. She was as pale as the moon overhead. Her coat, leggings, and heavy sweater were slashed, tattered, crusted with drying blood. She stood too close on purpose, the heat scraping her skin like steel wool. She didn't care. The rage in her chest. Hard grief like a boulder. Her grief pinned her lungs and kept her from feeling the inferno. It preserved the rage and grief frozen in her heart, kept it nice and fresh and raw. She held a stick in her hand and held it out, roasting an imaginary marshmallow. She watched a tiny flame burn briefly on the end and twirled it gently until it died. She waved it like a conductor's baton leading a fire orchestra. She pointed it up at the stars, sighting along the length of it like a telescope. Cygnus in the sky tonight, wings wide, flying near the full moon. A stick was always a good toy. 
A stick could be anything you wanted it to be. A boat. A cigar. A wand. Or a whip. Or a weapon. Like the big one she'd used to kill the werewolf. The devourer. Eater of grandmothers. Destroyer of happiness. A monster. A beast. She'd begun the day in flowers and forest, taking fresh bread and cold beer to her grandmother. Looking forward to stories, to soft hands braiding her hair, to hearing a warm, gravelly voice, soothing, teasing, laughing. Making Grandma laugh, the greatest of achievements. Her grandmother's laugh was merry and real, but rare. A hard-won victory and a joy to hear. She'd whipped at the flames with the stick. Eyes narrowing. Eyeballs prickling. Throat sore. She'd burst through the door to find the thing with her grandmother's foot in its mouth. Her foot. The last little bite of her. Being stuffed into its jaws. The rest of grandma. Nothing but blood and bits on the bed and floor. And it had her grandmother's hat on. As if it thought that was funny. Funny! It had turned to see her. Surprised. And then pleased. Dessert had served itself. Except dessert had a terrible temper. A famously terrible temper. That was why they called her Red. Dressed her in red clothes teased her about her cherry-bright hair. As if a short girl having a bad temper was a joke. Or, worst of all, cute. It had rushed her. A hairy black mass of muscle and slobber. Pointed ears brushed the ceiling of her grandmother's trailer. And instead of an ordinary fear, she'd felt a waterfall of vermilion hatred the likes of which she'd never experienced before. She'd screamed. She'd screamed and screamed, incoherent curses, as if she'd beaten and smashed the thing with any available implement she could close her fingers around. Pots, pans, knitting needles, tray tables, ashtrays. All things became missiles in her hands. It clawed at her bit her, threw her into the table, the counter, breaking bones and tearing flesh. But she stayed on her feet. The pain burned. Her heart burned. The terrible heat of it. A knitting needle blinded a big green eye. A tray table crashed long, clawed fingers. It howled. The monster had wised up and tried to run, but she chased it into the yard and, with a log from the woodpile, smashed it over the head until its skull collapsed like a cola can. Smashed it until it was still, except for the odd twitch here and there. Ghastly. All teeth and fur and yellow claws. Leaking brains, blood and Foam 
the final wisps of body heat streaming into the thin October air. And then she'd cried. From the shock of it all. For a while. When the well of tears ran dry, and the great, shuddering heaves of sobbing had abated, she dragged the monster's body into the woods behind the trailer park and built the bonfire. In her rage and grief, she gave the broken thing a few more smashes and kicks, and then she'd wrestled it into the fire. She'd burned herself a few times. It was hard to wrangle an eight-foot werewolf into a raging bonfire, especially when she was so small. But she'd managed. With the help of rage and grief, her two new best friends. The burns were barely noticeable, compared to her broken ribs and a probable concussion, and the deep, meaty cuts on her arms and legs. Who cared about a few blisters with all that wreckage? When the monster was mostly gone, before it was fully eaten by the flames, it had changed into a naked person. There wasn't much left to see, but where the long, bony fingers had been, there was a human hand instead, hanging away from the melting arm, fire snapping at its flesh like hungry dogs. The hand detached, wrist burned through. It dropped to the side of the fire and lay there innocently. She picked it up between her thumb and forefinger, examining it. It looked ordinary. It was wearing a ring on the middle finger. A golden ring with a wolf's head and strange writing etched around the sides. A peculiar and distinctive ring. She'd seen it before, or one like it. She'd seen rings like that on several of the people in the town. People she'd known her whole life. The mayor had one. The sheriff. The lady who ran the historical society. Her music teacher. The mailman. Her uncle. Beloved teacher of bonfire building. Her uncle had one too. She didn't wonder whose hand it was. Who cared which one of them it belonged to? Her town was full of monsters. Slobbering, murdering, grandmother-eating werewolves. It couldn't be allowed. She skewered the hand on the end of her stick. She waved it like a puppet, slowly. She poked at the dead palm with her finger. She then held it out of the fire and roasted it until it was medium rare. She sat down by the fire, finally letting herself feel tired, and ate her meal. She ripped at it with her small, white teeth. She ate every bite, even the bigger bones, until the hand was gone. Just in case, she told herself, just in case the bites and scratches weren't enough to do the job. She had to make sure. She slipped the ring onto her thumb and gazed at it, shining in the firelight. 
Either in the next few minutes or at the next full moon, she was going to be big and strong enough to eat all of the grandmother eaters. She would have the tools to murder the murderers. She knew who they were now. She knew where they all lived, worked, drank cocktails, bought their groceries. She knew this town and its people like a map of her own skin. She heard a snap and a pop, felt a deep twisting within as her backbone began to rearrange itself, cracking along with the fire. Everything about her grew longer, harder. There was no pain, only relief. It's to be done now, then, she thought. She wouldn't have to wait. As her grandmother used to say, why put off until tomorrow what you can do today? A giggle escaped her elongating throat. Rage and grief smiled and danced with glee at her plans, her two partners in revenge. She smiled along with these new best friends, a smile that grew wider and sharper at the glow of the pyre. She stretched her brutal hands out in front of her, and her eyes gleamed a bright glowing green at the sight of them. Who's the monster now? She whispered. She howled, her voice screaming across the night like a banshee, to let the monsters of the town understand, to let them try and prepare themselves, to let them know she was coming for them. That was Alex Norton's The Balefire, as read by David Dark. David is a lover of all things horror, from books to video games to TV, film, and podcasts. He currently resides in Ogden, Utah, with his large coven of acolytes, uh, his children. For voice acting-related correspondence, he can be reached at daviddark.vo at outlook.com. Thank you, David. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. 
not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Our second tale tonight comes from Lewis Evans. Lewis Evans graduated from a little college up in Boston. Well, not in Boston, but near Boston, down the road a ways, through the swirling mists. His work has been published in Nature Futures. Analog SF&F, Interzone, and more. He's online at evanslewis.com and tweets at lewisevanswright. Links are in the show notes. Listen with me, children of the night, to Lewis Evans' The Adjunct of Arkham, a Tales to Terrify original. Janavi Trivedi, PhD, had trawled the job market for years, but when her big break finally came, it came from her landlord, Erwin Abbotsbury. One Tuesday night, Janavi came through the door of Erwin Abbotsbury's Victorian townhouse, dusted in snow and slack with exhaustion, thinking of nothing more than her third-story cot and the seven hours of sleep, glorious sleep, that she might steal not quite far enough away from the grinding, grinding, grinding of the satanic mill that was her work as an adjunct professor. She spared barely a glance towards her landlord, reading in the parlour, as she made her way towards the slip-worn carpeting of the stairs. But a regal, <clears throat> from said landlord, suddenly arrested her. Erwin Abbotsbury was Professor Emeritus at Harvard, and looked like one, all dandelion fluff hair and sagacious-seeming wrinkles. The only break from purest stereotype were his oddly large and lugubrious eyes. He spoke like a professor, too. His sole mode of conversation was declamatory, short, irrefutable utterances, brief, commanding instructions, 
and full-length lectures. Age had lent a certain querulous tremor to Abbotsbury's voice, but the strength remained. <clears throat> he declaimed again, and despite the implicit impossibility of declaiming with a mere clearing of the throat, he managed it. Jane, you're home late. Genavi had spent more than one dispiriting evening attempting to explain to Professor Emeritus Abbotsbury the demeaning contours of her professional obligations, and the fact that a late return to her abode was more likely to be the consequence of offering 9pm office hours to half-illiterate freshmen up in Andover than of a sprightly soiree at the faculty club. But while you can always tell a Harvard man, you can't tell him much, and Abbotsbury had remained genteelly ignorant of the sort of indignities that a journeyman adjunct suffered in this day and age, Genavi had eventually given up on persuading him, and accepted Abbotsbury's misconceptions that Genavi was well liquored, well remunerated, and indeed well fed, as a sort of humorous though sorrowful window into the ways of a bygone age of the American Academy. Yes, sir, and uh, good night. Genavi always addressed Abbotsbury as sir. It had a remarkable placatory effect on his orneriness. The university, by which Abbotsbury meant both Harvard in particular and Western civilization more generally, had gone downhill since students abandoned that dignified mode of address. Genavi had won quite a bit of favour with him, and once or twice a certain elasticity in the date of payment of the rent through diligent employment of this more traditional honorific. But this Thursday, Abbotsbury was not to be pushed aside. Again he spoke. Jane, you said you were looking for a tenure-track position. I found one. Genavi practically slid back down the stairs. You what? she hissed. Sir, she added. Abbotsbury waved a newspaper over the high back of his reading chair, crumpled in his skeletal hand. Genavi walked over, took it from the claw-like grasp of her landlord, and smoothed it carefully. It's a publication of limited circulation, Abbotsbury said. Of a discerning circulation, in fact. Certain leading academic lights. The paper was thin and parchment yellow, and Genavi had to smooth it very delicately indeed, but she got it flattened out. It was an advertisement, bordered in scrollwork that suggested a much earlier age of magazine publishing. Miskatonic University seeks a young scholar of the art of philosophy, and so on and so on. And then at the bottom, the magic word, looming from amidst a curlicued sea of letters. Tenure. But this was just an advertisement. Genavi knew better than to get her hopes up. Uh, thank you, sir. I'll certainly send them my curriculum vitae. Tosh, said Abbotsbury spitting out that one dubious word as if it meant somehow both QED and a medium-grade obscenity. I called on your behalf. You've got the post. What? Genavi could hardly believe her ears. I took it upon myself to reach out. Dean an old friend. Smart young girl like you should do just fine. I know you've been looking for quite some time. Two years, Genavi had been searching for work. Two years grounding half a dozen classes a semester from colleges and universities all across Boston. Two years negotiating with tight-fisted administrators and provosts who had the upper hand and acted like it. Two years of driving her poor Nissan Central like an arthritic mule from Quincy to Woburn to Waltham. 
Two years of revising and fruitlessly re-revising her resume, of changing the headline from Janavi Trivedi to Jane, from Jane to simply J. Trivedi, knowing that such subterfuge could not possibly survive even the first meeting with the search committee, and committing it anyway. Two years of watching search committees choose anyone and everyone but her, with those few precious tenure-track positions that they dangled from their disdainful fingers like glittering teardrop diamonds, like the proverbial brass ring. Sometimes it was to another scholar, simply more talented and capable than Janavi, and while that was in a sense the bitterest pill, it went down smooth. More often, she lost to the beneficiary of some nepotistic connection, some uncle's cousin's son with a flimsy diploma, some brainless scion of a lumber baron who fancied himself the Wittgenstein of Wilmington, and whose daddy's money could from time to time purchase that impression. And every one of those hacks was a white man. Janavi tried to bear up under that fact stoically. She knew her parents, who had arrived in the United States not as Pittsburgh University-educated Janavi Trevedi, PhD, but as Dr. and Dr. Aruna and Jaya Trevedi, with a matching pair of University of Calcutta medical degrees that in America qualified them to drive cabs or sweep floors, take your pick, had borne up under far worse. And yet, whenever the faculty pages of even the most peniante universities added another pasty face of another slobbering incompetent, well, it grated. Two very long years indeed. And so when Abbotsbury told her she had the job, Janavi got a little weak in the knees and ended up needing rather more than a sip of restorative brandy before Abbotsbury could let her depart the parlour for the solitude of her attic nook. Abbotsbury's eyes followed her up the stairs, large and strangely watery, though never quite on the point of weeping. Janavi lay on her bed in the darkness, staring up at the weather-worn ceiling. The creaking of the old house's joists had long since ceased to startle her, even on nights such as this one, when the wind hardly stirred in the trees beyond the single porthole, and yet the house groaned like a thing possessed. But Janavi had known true fear on the job market and the ill-mannered wailing of architecture did not disturb her. Janavi stared at the ceiling and thought about Miskatonic. Now that she had departed the parlour, it seemed like a dream, a fantasy, a delusion brought about by driving too late through too much snow. And yet, she knew nothing about Miskatonic, had not once heard the name, even as she scoured the Greater Boston Area's academies for a single spare class and something about the ghoulishness of the situation. The aged increased professor, the aged increased parchment, the inscrutable boiling script of the advertisement, entered into her soul and began to rattle there. Perhaps she should turn away while she still could. Janavi sighed, rolled over, went to sleep, woke up, and in the morning she took the job she had to teach. That was all there was to it. Well, that and the money. Janavi packed her bags, not many, and said her goodbyes, just as few. And away she went that very weekend. The Nissan Sentra cuffed and spluttered and hauled her northward. Abbotsbury stood in the street before the old Victorian and watched Janavi go. His expression inscrutable his eyes mucilent. 
Google Maps gave out twenty miles from the school, while before it had deigned to show the location of Miskatonic U, two out of five stars. Once Janavi reached the forest, it showed no sign of that institution. It wasn't a problem of signal. It was some obscure failure within the bowels of code. Janavi shrugged. Not much to do about it. And in any case, she was close enough that she needed not rely on such a contrivance. Five miles out from the school, the Nissan Sentra gave out, and that proved a bit more of a challenge. Janavi didn't have much baggage, but not too much is quite a bit different from none. As she stood in the sandy shoulder by the side of the narrow country road, marshland giving way to bay behind her, before her the road and beyond it a wall of oak and elm, her heart quivered at the edge of despair. The phone had no service, and as far as she could see down either road, there was no glint of an approaching car. What was approaching was dusk. Janavi shouldered her bags and began to wheel her sole suitcase through the moist sand. The darkness wrapped itself around her like a cloak, like a blindfold, like the vast and writhing appendages of some leviathan. Janavi walked and shivered through the fog, and upon her grew the sensation of being watched, ever more attently, by the indolent eyes of some monstrosity. That was ordinary enough. We have all felt it in the night, in solitude. The peculiar thing was that the sensation did not come from the forest beside her, where shadows pulled between every creaking bough. No. Despite the darkness, despite the forbidding aspect of the forest on the far side of the road, the tree seemed to Janavi a place of sterility and safety. It was the marsh that watched her, with wet, slimy eyes. It was the marsh that lazily focused the attention of her mind far more than human upon the single struggling figure of Janavi as she toiled along the road towards the college. No rescue came, neither car nor wayward pedestrians, and eventually fatigue overcame Janavi's sense of foreboding. Panting and sweating, she came to a tall iron gate, with nothing more on her mind than the burning in her arms and legs. The gate was perhaps twenty feet tall, and closed tight. On either side, brick walls stretched out into the night. Hello? Janavi called. There was no answer, not even an echo. Then a face, pale and ghastly, like an abyssopelagic scavenger, hoisted into the light by an unkind fishing trawler, erupted out of the darkness. Uh, hello? Janavi tried again. No answer came from the other man. I'm Janavi Trevedi. Is this Miskatonic? The pale face nodded slowly, solemnly, and the gate creaked open. And then the night porter led Janavi Trevedi to her room. Curled into her bed, she texted her mother about the new job. She pored over every word of her message, as intently as she ever pored over her dissertation compelled by the hope that with the right words, just the right words, something might be different. And finally, prayerfully, her face illuminated by her phone as a pilgrim by his candle, she pressed send. Dr. Jaya Trevedi texted her back within minutes. When will you get a real job? And then again, when this nonsense falls apart, don't come crying to me. 
Janavi curled up in bed and tried to sleep. And when she did, her dreams were of tenure review committees, deep in the marshes, every professor a colossus formed of swampland. Classes began the next day, and despite the strange environs, the philosophy department was almost grindingly familiar to Janavi, the students, for whom anyone who had died before TikTok was an ancient. The professors, to whom anyone writing after the Punic Wars was a self-absorbed upstart. The handful of administrators, who lived neither in the crystal palaces of the future or amid the marble ruins of the past, but instead in some mighty triplicate edifice of the present, who always knew where Janavi was supposed to be long before she herself did. Well, Janavi knew the score, and though she was in theory tenure-tracked, she'd never had a more frantic and unforgiving week than her first week at Miskatonic. Her predecessor, one Dr. Yancey, had disappeared under obscure circumstances. Probably got herself pregnant, and these Puritans too bashful to say so directly, Janavi surmised. Regardless, Yancey had left behind three full course loads of students, dozens of advocacies, and a series of lesson plans that consisted entirely of notepads with unhelpful jottings like Mention can't hear, or the name Dakar, circled vigorously five times, and then just as vigorously crossed out. Somehow she never found a good opportunity to rescue her faithful Nissan, left rusting away along the marshy shoulder. And so, as time plays with us, it was a full fortnight before Janavi exchanged more than passing words with Professor Ellery, the head of her department. Ellery's office was nothing like the oak-panelled Gothicism that Janavi had imagined. It was all exposed concrete and hospital-white plastic furniture. The vast blank expanse of the desk stretched out before Janavi like Avicenna's Tabula Rasa, broken only by a single sheet of paper that sat before Ellery and a curled octopus tentacle which lay to Janavi's left. "'Well, Janavi,' said Ellery, "'I'm glad to see you've been settling in at our humble institution.' Uh, thank you, sir, said Janavi. She glanced at the tentacle. It was arranged in a careful spiral, and it glistened as though it was still moist. What marvellous use of lamentation, Janavi thought. How do you feel you've been getting on? Well, sir, said Janavi, and she was off. You don't make it far in academia without the ability to deliver a constant stream of informative and low-risk small talk. But even as she spoke, her jaw wagging animatedly, her eyes were inexplicably drawn to the tentacle on the plastic expanse of desk, to the delicate interplay of subtle colour where the pinkish flesh of the arm and the blanched infundibulum of the sucker joined. It had to be preserved, wasn't it? Yes, well, said Ellery when Janavi paused for breath. I can see you've been working very hard. His finger traced idle circular patterns on the tabletop. But of course, Ellery added, as if it were an afterthought, simple academic excellence is not enough. Not here, not anywhere. Janavi nodded, though secretly she disagreed with every passionate fibre of her being. Miskatonic is in many ways special. But in this way, just like everywhere else, really, said Ellery, gesturing expansively. His cuticles were exactly the same colour as the tentacle sucker. Janavi tried not to stare. 
we want the best people, of course, but we're also looking for people who belong, people who can fit in, work well, and strive here at good old you of Misk. Ellery's finger landed on the tentacle. It was not preserved. Janavi could see the slight dimple that the pressure of Ellery's finger produced, the slight squishing out of moisture onto the tabletop. She noticed a tinge of salt in the air. I hope you'll remember that. Janavi nodded dumbly. What else was there to do? Another week of classes, of students fumbling over Rousseau, and Ellery invited Janavi to a weekly night out of the philosophy department. Janavi in a windbreaker, making her way to the waterside pub, the lights in its windows pouring out into the abyssal dark of the night. Janavi entered the door, and her colleague's head swivelled as one, conversation dying on their lips. Finally, Ellery called out, Jane, come in, girl, come in, and Janavi did, making her way to the rear table where the philosophy department perched. No other patrons occupied the inn, not at nine-thirty on a Tuesday night, but in that small room the ten souls of the philosophy department were quite enough to fill much of the space. Janavi squeezed herself in at the table, and suddenly it was all collegial smiles and backslaps and a free pint. She retained her windbreaker, and rubbed the evening chill from her shoulders, and slurped at the bitter brew, casting an evaluating glance around the table. She'd seen most of the other professors of the philosophy department before, but mostly in passing, bent over their desks, presiding over class, striding through the crowded halls. In such circumstances, nearly everyone took on a certain air of authority, presents a certain charismatic aura. Huddled around the table, the impression was quite different. A collection of oddballs, really. Three-quarters bald, and with a remarkable range of physiognomies. Jowls and hatchet faces and high-arched foreheads, and exactly one single formidable eyebrow, all the way across Professor Lehman's visage. Miskatonic might proclaim its progressive intent, in the banners strung up in the administration building, with their slogan, Misk you, a twenty-first century university, emblazoned proudly above the university's ancient shield of pyramid and eye, and from what Janavi could see of the other departments, it was even true. The scholarship programme was world-class, if little known. The new faculty hires in other departments were, if anything, a cut above other Massachusetts institutions in diversity. But the philosophy department was a definite atavism. Not one of them would have been out of place in the Miskatonic faculty of two centuries earlier, and Janavi had the distinct sense of falling through the veneer of an old daguerreotype. She was asked no questions and spoke little, but this seemed not to trouble her colleagues any. An hour passed, and then two, and the philosophy department's prodigious appetite for bitter, watery beer showed no signs of abating. But Janavi could feel the furrowed tick on her forehead that meant she was about two minutes away from face-planting into the table and beginning to snore, and so she made her excuses. The philosophy department, already she had begun to conceive them as a sort of many-headed entity, made no attempt to encourage her to stay, and silently watched her go. The pattern was established. The weeks consisted of frantic activity, a whirlwind of lectures and office hours. Janavi once spared a few minutes to examine the class schedule, 
and came to the not entirely shocking conclusion that she was doing just over half of the teaching of the entire department. The senior professors taught a single class each, at most, and these often were late afternoon seminars over coffee, a social engagement more than a labour of pedagogy. When she had been younger, Janavi had despised such tenured laxity. Standing between Janavi and her academic dream was a vast edifice of aged professors, sloppy, lazy and indifferent. Of course she held them in contempt. But now, running ragged, she simply envied them. With her few spare minutes a day, she composed lavish emails to her mother, detailed all of her accomplishments, outlined her confidence in the longevity and remuneration of her position, waxing poetic about the natural beauty of the college, and so on. Such notes, by and large, went unresponded to. The few notes Janavi did receive were not kind. And then there were Tuesdays. Janavi had begun to emerge from her conversational shell, step by careful step. The professors weren't too bad when you got to know them. Practically a jolly bunch. Sure, their references all dated to the wrong century, and their word choice, whenever they touched on Janavi's ancestry, predated the establishment of the Raj, let alone its dissolution, and she couldn't decide who made her more uncomfortable. The professors who decided she was a lady and treated her with exaggerated gentility, or the ones whose ideas of boys' talk antedated the 19th Amendment. But still, Janavi could get by. She could make herself get by. Janavi had a respectable education in philosophy, but being an adjunct professor was a world-class degree in getting by. Still, Tuesdays were a little peculiar. Despite the growing warmth, half artificial, very much willed into existence, and yet not entirely fictitious, between Janavi and her colleagues, the older men were keeping a secret. She could tell in the way that the conversation would leave off and pick up whenever she departed and returned to the table, to the way in which certain obscure allusions wormed their way into sundry professors' sentences, accompanied among the poorer dissemblers by half-stealthy glances in Janavi's direction. And she could tell by another extraordinary fact. Nobody ever left the bar before Janavi. Not once. At first she noticed this only idly, but then it started to gnaw at her. Sure, Janavi was overworked, but she was between half and a third of the age of these men, and yet whenever she rose to leave their company, the same nine unblinking faces stared at her, eyes dry and tireless. Janavi began to push it, driving herself to remain up later and later, matching glances with old Professor Harris across the table, willing the other man to give in and retire early. Hell! The man went to bed at three in the afternoon most days, and he taught a class at four. But never on Tuesdays. Janavi made midnight, one Tuesday after another. The frail old men trembled like leaves, and their sighs came heavy and tired, and yet Janavi gave first. And then there was the matter of Wednesdays. One day at lunchtime, Janavi rushed into the department lounge in frantic search of a half-assembled semblance of a sandwich, and her foot squashed. She looked down, and underfoot was a perfectly circular wet spot on the carpet, and very faintly, Janavi could smell something saline, something almost fishy. But she didn't dwell on it. 
Few people care to dwell on exactly what they've stepped in. Another week, and Janavi saw a similar puddle leaking from beneath Ellery's door. And another. And this time the department coffee pot was full of the stuff, almost briny in flavour. Only then did Janavi realise that the fluid, whatever it was, was only appearing on Wednesdays. Tuesday evenings in the pub, seawater all around the department on Wednesdays. And, finally, they reached the penultimate week of the semester. Tuesday evening, sitting around the table, no esoterica in the conversation, just frank relief that the students would be going, going, gone. Janavi stood to leave. Ellery met her eyes. Stay a while, Janavi, he said. His voice was soft and serious. I should really stay said Ellery, and he did not break her gaze. And Janavi realised that this was it. This was the offer, the opportunity, to join the department, to ingratiate herself to its members, to belong. Janavi stared opportunity in its wrinkled, shrunken eyes, and the hungry, ambitious part of her yearned to accept the offer, to pay whatever secret price the philosophy department intended to exact, to seize the opportunity and crush the wealth, the power and the safety of it. But within her there was an animal instinct, a dread that stilled her tongue. Say what you will about the small, scurrying prey animals of this world, they're no better than to enter the snake's mouth. And so Janavi lowered her head, made her mumbled excuses, and left. Shame and relief swirled around Janavi's head as she made her way towards the university. But joining them, growing stronger and stronger, was a spirit of curiosity. Janavi knew better than to join the faculty on their secret deed. But perhaps she could observe them. A dozen paces from the pub, Janavi made up her mind and hastened to the cover of a nearby tree. And waited. And waited. The door to the pub creaked open, and the philosophy department of Miskatonic University emerged into the night. Janavi peered at them. A handful of wraiths in the darkness, tweed jackets grey against the navy blue of night. And then, in one mass, they set out walking. Not down the road towards the university, not up the road towards the town of Arkham, off into the marshes instead, down towards the sea. The old men tromped through the grasses, and Janavi followed. The light of the quarter moon only haphazardly illuminated their steps, and between watching her own steps, attempting to remain undetected, and pursuing her quarry, Janavi became quite lost. She could not have retraced her steps to save her own skin. Quite abruptly, all of them, the nine elderly professors and their one surreptitious companion, came upon the sea. It was a dark inlet and from the sound of the waves that beat against the shore, it was a deep one. There was a narrow beach in the shape of a horseshoe, and the philosophy professors arrayed themselves around it. Janavi concealed herself within a bush. As one, the philosophers dropped to their knees. The waves within the bay were stilled. The black surface of the water ran on and on like a pane of flawless glass, and yet within it, writhing in the moonlight, were other waves. Waves somehow orthogonal to the very nature of space, Janavi peered at the inexplicable sight. And then the waters parted, 
and a mass of tentacles rose high, high, high above the bay, an obscene fountain, a fleshy Yggdrasil, writhing with inscrutable purpose. One by one, slender arms separated themselves from the mass, writhing free of their fellows, and they descended downward to the philosophy professors, and the men opened their mouths to receive these tentacles, and as they did so, Janavi saw a kaleidoscope of pain and ecstasy and enlightenment erupt across the moonlit faces of the men, and then a slick shining call that bubbled forth from the tentacles and enlivened every dry crease and wrinkle with a damp secretion. Janavi gasped. She couldn't help herself, though she stilled that small animal sound the moment it left her throat, and for one moment more she thought she had gotten away with it. Then a tenth tentacle detached itself from the stately writhing of its upright fellows and began slowly, blindly, to quest towards Janavi. Her heart hammered in her chest, her blood throbbed in her head. Strive though she might, she could not move an inch. She was utterly paralysed, as small, warm bodies often are in their moment of encounter with that which is immense, ancient and cold. The tentacle crept closer and closer, and now the professors were noticing a deviation from their routine, pointing at Janavi, still in their prostate posture, the mouth still furled of cephalopod. And then the tentacle, which was as wide around as Janavi and longer than the mightiest python, paused. Slowly, slowly, the sphincter at its tip oscillated open, revealing a vast, ancient eye, and Janavi ran. The next morning, Ellery summoned Janavi into his office at nine sharp. Janavi entered. The office was just as she remembered it from the beginning of the semester. Ellery stood behind the desk. His lips and eyes were so, so moist. The tentacle on the desk was bigger now, twitching under a paperweight. Hello, Janavi, Ellery said. When he opened his mouth, a spurt of water exited it and landed on the floor. He didn't seem to notice. Hello, Professor, said Janavi Trevedi. There was a long and awkward silence, during which drawl-like strands of pelagic ichor extended from Ellery's lips. Are you familiar with the seal of Miskatonic University? Ellery said, eventually. More water emerged, but it did not interfere with his speech in any way. Yes, of course, said Janavi. The three-stepped pyramid representing the intellectual labours of man. Discovery, insight and understanding. Surmounted by the blinded eye, Janavi nodded. As the constant reminder that, however high we reach, some things pass beyond our understanding, some things man ought not to pry into. And what kind of attitude is that for a philosophy professor? Janavi thought. People forget that. In this day and age, Ellery gave a pointed glance at Janavi. It's all been downhill since the Greeks, of course, the old man sighed. They were a seafaring people. They knew better than to offer laissez majesté to the deep. Janavi nodded again. She did not seem to have any lines left in this performance. I suppose what I mean to say, Jane, is that we don't think you're a good fit for Miskatonic University and so we're asking you to leave. In fact, it might be best if you weren't anywhere near campus by, say, next Tuesday night. Ellery's words entered Janavi and hollowed her out, 
sculpt a soul, but still she nodded, quietly. Goodbye, Dr. Trevedi, said Ellery. His mouth seemed to have largely dried up, no more than an ordinary amount of spittle landed on Janavi. Janavi Trevedi spent the next hours in a state of blind panic, which was not especially conducive to her orations on John Rawls. She had nowhere to go, no job, no car even, in which to leave, no last paycheck from Miskatonic's dysfunctional administration, no time to pack, no... And it was in that panic she texted her mother. Job didn't work out, after all. Expecting only a continued stream of scorn for her endless failings. Instead, we love you, Janavi. Come stay with us. And so, like any wounded animal, Janavi went home. By foot, she exited the ancient gate of the college and passed by the blanched and speechless face of her porter. By bus, she went south, passing the scavenged carcass of her former car. The road turned and bent and bore her by fits and starts away from the marsh, away from the sea. She passed through the city, that towering concrete and steel hive, the monument the mammals have built to their own greatness, and for a time she imagined herself one of them, pretending that no terrible knowledge set her apart from her fellows. And then she boarded the second bus. That bus stopped in the small town on the Cape, where her parents had settled. Janavi made her way to the house on foot. The gravel of the driveway crunched under her shoes, and behind the house rose the spray of the ocean. Janavi's mother and father stood before their house, a little stiff, watching her approach. She came to a halt in front of them. Hello, daughter, said her mother. We love you and the seawater poured and poured from her mouth. That was Lewis Evans, the adjunct of Arkham as read by a new voice here on Tales to Terrify, Georgia Cook. Georgia Cook is an illustrator and writer from London. She has experience on both sides of the recording booth, and, in addition to Tales to Terrify, has contributed to such podcasts as The Other Stories and The Night's End, as both a narrator and writer. She can be found on Twitter at Georgia Cooked and on her website at georgiacookwriter.com. Thank you, Georgia. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Amazing fans like Kathy Robinson, aka Deadly Blonde. If you're not a supporter already, be like Kathy. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Head over to Patreon.com slash Tales to Terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks, from ad-free episodes and bonus content, to shout-outs and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into the show to help make it as dark and devious as possible. And we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Brian Rollins, and myself, Drew Sebastini with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we desecrate hollowed ground with more Tales to Terrify. <laughs>